Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. I have been in grieving all week, um, knowing that this is going to be our last day in Acts. Yeah, this is it. Um, and, uh, you know, all good things, right? All good things. And two and a half years in this book, uh, I, and I know you've heard me say this before, and I mean it, and it's worth repeating. I don't think I've had any book, uh, you know, study and, and, and teaching that I've ever done in ministry. I've been teaching for about 15 years now, uh, pretty consistently, every week. And uh, this book has transformed my life you know, uh, yeah, in ways that I didn't foresee. That's, that's for sure. And I pray that it's done the same for you. Uh, but, uh, but, but here we are, okay? And, and we've got a lot to cover before we conclude today. And so uh, have your, your Bibles open to Acts chapter 28. Have your notebook ready and be prepared. Uh, you know, most, most of the time in movies and stories, books that we read, uh, authors, directors uh, are pretty consistent in terms of their approach to the conclusion of a narrative, right? They like to button things up real tidy at the end. Like, they like to bring re- resolution because if you feel good at the end of the movie uh, or at the end of your, you know, your binging your TV series, you're more likely uh, to recommend that to your friends or speak highly of it, give it good reviews. But sadly, that is not how Luke concludes Acts, okay? He doesn't take that approach, because why, why? Because real life is messy, amen? And it doesn't always end or conclude the way that we imagine it. Things don't get resolved so easily in real life, and that's true in the history book of the apostles as well. So I want to warn you in advance that our story today will end abruptly, almost as though something interrupted Luke in his writing, But don't be disheartened by this fact, okay? If it doesn't bring you all the resolution and all the feels that you want to feel, don't be disheartened. The open-ended conclusion is not a reason for discomfort, but rather an invitation to believe, to trust that so much of what has inspired us in the book of Acts, in terms of the mission, in terms of our purpose, our lifestyle, is still the perpetual calling on our lives today. In other words, where this book ends, your life picks up. And the onus is on you. And as we finish today, we have to ask ourselves all of the hard questions over again. We have to ask ourselves, are we willing to take the baton and run with it where the apostles have left off? That's a very exciting question to ask yourself. Especially in the last of the last days, when, when the world all around us seems to have lost their ever-loving mind. It looks a lot like, in fact, the first century in which the Paul, uh, Paul and the apostles lived. You know, Paul lived in a world where they had something called exposure. Okay? And in Roman culture, it was common if people did not want their baby to just leave their baby, abandon their baby in the woods or the wilderness and leave it to die. 
It's first century abortion, you understand. In the first century, people were obsessed with entertainment that was, that was violent and vicious. And they would go to gladiatorial fights and they'd sit and they'd watch this as their entertainment. It is not much different than the bloodlust that we experience today through our television or through MMA fighting or the things that we enjoy so much. It's not, much that, not that much different. It was a pagan society where, where people were idolatrous. They were concerned with money. They were concerned with self. It's not any different than us today. We are the new Rome as, as the way that Pastor Alan Shelby likes to put it. And just like the apostles were given an opportunity to see their world changed, we have that opportunity today in 2021. And the only question is, will you labor in the faith? And will you devote your life to the mission in such a way that God can use you? That's the question. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you and we're trusting you for this time. And God, I I pray that we would take your word seriously and we would take the call on our lives seriously and Lord, that we would be able to glean all the things that we need to glean today as we finish finish this book. Lord, we're so thankful for the book of Acts, the fact that you gave to Luke through inspiration the ability to capture everything important in those those first few decades of your church. And Lord, that's been handed down through preservation Century after century, the Christians have given their lives time and time again to ensure that we would have this book in our very hands. And so here we stand where we have so much responsibility in knowing that you've delivered this book to us through blood and through superintendent, supernatural work, that you've brought this to us word for word, exactly what we need to hear. Lord, I pray that we would not abuse that or neglect it in any way whatsoever, Lord, but that we would receive it in the power of your Holy Spirit, knowing that you have expectations for our life and there's something that we're to believe you for. Lord, use your spirit to speak to us today. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's talk, let's, let's just go ahead and read through our story. Let's talk about what's happening here and we're gonna come back and we're gonna look at what uh, the Lord would have for us to learn today. So in Acts chapter 28, verse 16, it says, And when we came to Rome, that is Paul and all of those men that were on the ship with him. Okay, remember the the objective was to deliver Paul into uh, the the, the capture of the Roman government so that he could stand before uh, Caesar and the tribunal and that that he would finally have the hearing that he needed to have in order to clear his name. Okay, that's the objective. And so they're bringing Paul before Caesar. The centurion delivered the prisoners to the captain of the guard, but Paul was suffered. In other words, he was entreated to dwell by himself with a soldier that kept him. So we've been waiting for this arrival over these many chapters, and here we are. And he's on house arrest. Verse 17, and it came to pass that after three days, Paul called the chief of the Jews, to, uh, called the chief of the Jews together. In other words, at this time, there's about 40 or 50,000 Jews in Rome. Okay, there's, a, there's a huge contingent of Jewish people that were worshiping in lots of different synagogues. There's lots of different places to worship. It wasn't as centralized as what we would have seen in Jerusalem where the worshipers came together and the Sanhedrin kind of ruled over and dictated the way that Jewish culture or religion would happen in Jerusalem. In Rome, it was a little bit different 
Uh, there were synagogues that were dispersed, and there were many different leaders, and things weren't as centralized as they were in Jerusalem or, say, a place like Alexandria. So this gathering of the chief Jews was comprised of various religious leaders from, from throughout the, the community. And when they were come together, he said unto them, Men and brethren, though I have committed nothing against the people or customs of our fathers, yet was I delivered prisoner from Jerusalem into the hands of the Romans. So he's appealing to them by first explaining his case and the situation surrounding all the hearings that we've seen over these many chapters now. Verse 18. Who, when they had examined me, would have let me go, because there was no cause of death in me. So in other words, all the accusations, they discovered they were false. There was no reason for him to be in capture. And when the Jews spake against it, I was constrained to appeal unto Caesar. In other words, they forced my hand. And so I, I declared, I appealed as a Roman citizen, I appealed, appealed to Caesar. Not that I had ought to accuse my nation of. For this cause, therefore, have I called for you, to see you and to speak with you. Because that for the hope of Israel, I am bound with this chain. So he's explaining that after several hearings, there have been no charges, that he's an innocent man. But we see here that his heart is actually to call these Jewish leaders together, that he might preach the gospel, and that they might receive it, and that they might understand once and for all who Jesus Christ the Messiah is. That was always his objective. Verse 21. They said unto him, We neither received letters out of Judea concerning thee, Neither any of the brethren that came showed or, uh, or spake any harm of thee. And so to Paul's surprise, the Sanhedrin, you know, that, that anti-Paul message that had been spread around Asia Minor and throughout Jerusalem, that that hadn't actually reached Rome and that they hadn't heard much about Paul or these accusations. And, and so there's a couple reasons why that might be. It could be that the accusers just hadn't gotten to Rome yet. Remember, this time of year it was difficult to travel. Maybe they just hadn't gotten there yet to expose the Jewish leaders to all of their lies. Or the fact that Paul had appealed to Caesar, that they'd basically given up knowing that their accusations were shallow and that they wouldn't hold merit before Caesar. And so they had maybe just let go and relented and expected that Paul would probably be set free once he got to Rome. It could be either one of those we don't know. But the Jewish leaders, uh, when they were they're hanging out with Paul, they, were, they were, really didn't have any preconceptions about Paul, right? And so they were willing to listen to him and hear him, verse 23. And when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him into his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning till evening. So he's preaching to them all day long. And some believe the things which were spoken and some believe not. You know, that's how things work in our world today. When we preach to people, some will believe and some will not. We've got we've to reckon that to be true. Nothing has changed from Paul's day, right? Some people will believe when you preach the gospel, some will not. And when they had agreed, not among themselves, in other words, they, they couldn't come to a conclusion as a group or as a collective, they departed after that Paul had spoken one word. He had one last word for them. Well spake the Holy Ghost by Isaiah, the prophet unto our fathers, saying, this is what Paul had to say to them, this was his message to them as they departed, saying, go unto this people and say, hearing, ye shall hear and shall not understand. 
And seeing, ye shall see and not perceive. For the heart of this people is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing. And their eyes have they closed, lest they should see with their eyes, and, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and should be converted. And I should heal them. Be it known therefore unto you, that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles, and that they will hear it. And when he had said these words, the Jews departed and had great reasoning among themselves. And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. So that's our story. Okay, that's how this book concludes. And we've got three takeaways that we need to take from the word today. Okay, we, there's three things that we need to learn from the life of Paul today before we put a closure to this book and we walk away. We're going to look at three things, three integral concepts that we should not forget as we launch off from this book into the reality of our own faith. And these are things that we cannot forget. All right, so if, there's, if there are things that I, I need for us to take away as we leave Acts behind, it's these things. These are the things that have to resonate with us year after year, decade after decade, as you move from a young adulthood into your senior years of living. These things can never leave you. These things are the things that distinguish us from Laodicea. These are the things that separate us from, from what they often refer to as, as domestic transcendence. In other words, this, this nominal Christian faith, this, this bleeding in of the church into the world where we adopt the lukewarmness that's all around us, this is the stuff that will separate us from the fake Christianity that we see everywhere. And we need to understand it. It's very, very important. So let's first begin by reminding ourselves that Paul is our ensample. And as such, he provides us with the doctrinal and inspirational insight necessary to be a faithful disciple. Now, when we say the word ensample, we talked about this long time ago. This word ensample, literally, it means a mold. And Paul has told us in the word of God that he is our ensample for the New Testament church. Uh, uh, Philippians 3.17 says, Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have uh, us for an ensample. We are your ensample. We, the teachers, the apostles, are your ensample, and Paul himself in particular. And in terms of being our ensample, there are several things that we observe from Paul's life that affect us even today. They should resonate with us even today. And the first one we ad we're going to address here is is actually perhaps the most difficult one. It's, it's, the, it's the hardest one for us to address because it's the most inconvenient thing that we have to learn today. And that's this. That as our ensample, Paul was a man of intense obsession. Now, our lives are filled with obsession too, right? There's lots of us that are obsessed with things, Right? And these are the things that preoccupy us. These are the things that take up our time. They take up our energy. All right? You know the things that you're obsessed with. Okay? The things that you spend the majority of your time in. Right? The things that you spend hours, spend hours and hours every week doing or thinking about. When we say the word obsession, what we mean is one's thoughts or feelings that are dominant, dominate their life by persistent idea or desire or action. That's what we mean. Now, Paul had an obsession. 
I don't know if you've picked up on that yet or not. Paul had an obsession, and his obsession was seeing souls saved. We know this by observing the lengths at which Paul went to expose the lost to the gospel. We see it in his life. We see it in the testimony of the way he lives. He was so impassioned that he was willing to set aside his very identity and way of life for the sake of souls. Now, you know, identity is such a big deal in contemporary society. We talk about identity constantly. And all of us see ourselves in a particular way. That's the beauty of a customizable world, right? In a postmodern world, you can kind of, it's funny, we all think that we're so unique. We're so convinced of our own uniqueness. But the truth is, the world has afforded us many, many different templates by which we can, you know, we can pick this template and that template. We can even mash them up. But you are still, still just as fake and as <laughs> same as you would ever be, right? There is no, there is no look, at, look, at, look at us in here, okay? Look at us. We're all just the same. But we're convinced of our, our own uniqueness and identity has become such a really, such a big deal to us. I mean, just look at the amount of plaid in this room alone. Is a testimony of the, the fact that we're all just basically the same. Okay? And, uh, and we were, but we're obsessed with this idea of identity, but Paul, had, uh, Paul was willing to abandon all of the things that he identified with, right? All of his accolades, all of his prestige, all of his heritage, he was willing to set all those things aside that he might simply win souls, that he might be able to become and to adapt to any environment or any culture or any people that he surrounded himself. He just became what he needed to become so that he might win souls. That's what he did. 1 Corinthians 9.22, he says the following, "To To the weak became I as weak, that I might gain the weak. I am made all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. In our story today, we find this obsession played out again. It's on display again as he begs the Jewish leaders to open their eyes to the reality of Christ. What's it say in verse 23? And when they had appointed him a day, there came many to him in his lodging, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets. Now catch this. From morning till evening, he pleaded with them about the gospel. There's many of us who are not even willing to preach the gospel for 30 seconds in the line at the grocery store. And yet here we have a man that was willing to give his entire day from morning till night speaking of the goodness of Jesus Christ that just some, that just a handful might be saved. And this kind of behavior is common throughout the entire narrative of Paul's life and throughout all of Acts. We've seen it over and over again. In Acts 20, 20, he declares that he, uh, he's, he's gathered the, the, the leaders in Ephesus together, and he reminds them of the fact that he went from house to house in Ephesus for years preaching the gospel. In Athens, he preached in the synagogues every single Sabbath. This is a guy that was stoned. For preaching the gospel, and he was drug outside of the city only to get back up and go right back into that very city and preach again. 
These are the lengths at which he was willing to go that some might be saved. He was resilient in an incredible way, in a way that we have a hard time relating with, willing to take a thousand rejections for one reception, for just one person. And there's so many of us that are so obsessed with the idea of being rejected, right? We, th- this is the thing that we're, we're truly obsessed with. It's not with the fact that there might be some that would receive it. Our obsession as Christians is that we are afraid to be rejected. We have, we have quite literally the opposite obsession. With the prospect that one person might reject us, we keep our mouth quiet all the time. We're afraid. So why was Paul so persistent? What made Paul so unique? What made him so different from us today? Well, the difference is that he had a message that burned in his heart. And most of us have a message that takes a back seat. It is not the thing that we think on. It is not the thing that burns within us. It's not the thing that that preoccupies our thoughts. We don't think about the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not consumed with the message and the teachings of Jesus. They don't provoke us. They don't convict us. And they certainly don't change us. And we've got a message, but we allow ourselves to come up with excuses and reasons for why we don't need to obey it or think about it or listen to it. We get up in the morning, we, we, we read our verses, we, we do our Christian checklist, and, and nothing ever changes. And nothing ever burns, nothing ever, ever burns within our bosom, nothing ever consumes our thoughts or, or the way that we act or behave. But for Paul, he knew that he had a message that could set the world free. And so it consumed him. It swallowed him up. It led him to to go to excruciating lengths to ensure that the gospel would get to those who need it. Paul was a man of incredible convictions. And we need incredible convictions in our life. We have to shun distraction. We have to put away childish things. We have to stop watching so much TV. We have to stop choosing lounging instead of going to the coffee shop and meeting people with the chance that we might see one person over months of sowing come to know Jesus Christ. Our vain activities... They just get in the way, and they keep, us, they keep us from the obsessions that should, that should addict us to the ministry. Here's our key point. The mission-minded believer is surrendered to the obsessions of their calling. The mission-minded believer is surrendered to the obsessions of their calling. We know for a fact that Paul was obsessed, that he was addicted, and that he was an, an enabler. You guys know that term, right? 
If you're familiar with addiction, right, you're, you're probably also familiar with the, the term enabler. That's someone who tempts other people to, be, to fall into addiction. And that's the kind of person that Paul was. We know for a fact that he was an enabler. He, his obsessions were contagious to the people that were around him. And for those that followed him, he ruined their lives. That's what he did. For the people that chose to follow him and to, to be disciples with him, he ruined their lives for the glory of God. That's what he did. He writes this to his friends in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, of his friends in 1 Corinthians 16, 15. I beseech you, brethren, you know the house of Stephanus, that it is the first fruits of Achaia, and that they have addicted themselves to the ministry of the saints. That ye submitted yourselves, uh, that ye submit yourselves unto such and to every one that helpeth with us and laboreth. In other words, these people are addicted to the ministry. The house of Stephanus, they're addicted to the ministry. And he tells the church in Corinth that they ought to surround themselves with people just like that, that they might also become addicted. What he's telling them is that these people are obsessed with the gospel. And I would ask that you would surround yourself with people that are obsessed with the gospel, that you too might also be obsessed, that it would consume you, that it would be your every thought, that it would be your every action, your every desire, would be that, you, that some people, amidst a thousand rejections, might know the goodness of Jesus Christ. This is who we have to be. We know the evidence of addiction by the, the predictability of one's behaviors. Right? You can always tell an addict by how predictable the patterns of their life are and the things that they do. Right? Addicts tend to, to behave in a very particular way. right? And these signs are very obvious to people. Can people see the symptoms of gospel addiction or obsession in your life? When people look at you, can they see the evidence of your addiction? I don't know if you remember, but in Acts chapter 1, at the very beginning of our series, we, we read Christ's words to his followers. Very famous passage in Scripture, Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says this, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Okay, so something's going to happen to you. And this comes to fruition, right? In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit descends and falls on the believers. And that, that moment forward, we recognize that the Holy Spirit indwells all the, the, those that follow Jesus Christ. So this is a critical thing. What he's saying is something is going to happen. It's going to happen to you. And when it does, it's going to change your behavior. It's going to affect the way that you act. And the way that you behave will be predictable. And everyone will be able to see that you're addicted. Addicted to what? And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and on all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. And the question for us is, if we're going to live in the power of the Holy Spirit, will we also allow ourselves to be addicted by the ministry? If the Holy Spirit has a hold on you, if, if you're yielded to it, if the Holy Spirit is dwelling in you and burning within you, 
There is only one outcome. Obsession. Obsession to go. Obsession, obsession to go to your classmates, to the people at your workplace, to your neighborhood. Nothing will convince you not to go. Nothing could possibly stand in the way. No vain imagination or thought of rejection. Nothing will ever get in the way. You will simply go. It's the, it'll be the outpouring of the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. It'll be the thing when people look at you, they'll say to themselves, you know, I've noticed, I've noticed in them that they like to preach the gospel. I've noticed that about them. And everyone will know who and what you're obsessed with. Man, if we're going to glean anything from Paul and the apostles, it ought to be that. We cannot be a ministry of people who are the exact same as when we started out in Acts in the beginning. Something has to have changed. And this is one of those things that we must take away. You guys, are you, you hear me? So we've got, we've got the right obsession, right? That's the first thing. That's what we need. The next thing is we need the right doctrine. The right doctrine. Doctrine is critical. So another way in which Paul is an example to us is that he provides us with a correct doctrinal framework. And we always know that, that doctrine or teachings, teachings from God's word, they ought to impact our lives and change us in the way that we do ministry and the way that we do life. And we've learned that Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles, right? Haven't we learned that in Acts, that, that Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles? One, one that was born out of due time, as 1 Corinthians 15 says. And as such, he was responsible for the propagation of the apostles' creed, the apostles' doctrine, among the non-Jewish world. That's, that's us, by the way. You recognize that a Gentile is just any non-Jewish individual. That's us. And so Acts 13.47 says this, For so hath the Lord commanded us, saying, I have set thee to be a light of the, of the Gentiles. Okay, so the Lord had pressed upon this, uh, pressed this upon Paul, that he would be an apostle and a light to the Gentiles. That thou shouldest be, be for salvation unto the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. So as Gentiles ourselves, we must understand that God gave Paul to us specifically. God gave us, Paul, and his teachings and so that's why you'll often hear us say that as New Testament Christians, we take our distinct doctrines from Romans through Philemon. Right? We say that over and over and over again. What do we mean by that? What we mean is that these are the writings of Paul, and as such, they are the writings for the Gentile church, and they inform our, our ministry, our ecclesiastic practices, they teach us what to do and what to be. This is where we learn who we're supposed to be as the Gentile church. That's very important. And so we need to recognize the doctrinal significance of what's happening here at the end of Acts because it informs how we must proceed as believers. Okay, so when these Jewish leaders in Rome reject Paul's teaching, Paul makes a very crucial prophetic declaration that the nation of Israel, Israel's hearts 
were truly hardened to the gospel, and that the thrust of success in the mission moving forward will be found among the Gentile peoples of the world. Let's read. What does he say? He's quoting, he's quoting Isaiah here, okay, in Acts chapter 28. This is what he says. Hearing ye shall hear, and shall not understand. Okay, this is the declaration over the Jewish people that have rejected the gospel one more time. And seeing ye shall see, and not perceive, and for the heart of this people is waxed gross. It's, it's grown cold, it's grown lukewarm or cold, and these hearts are dull of hearing, and their, their eyes have they closed, lest... They should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and should be converted. And I should, I should heal them. That was God's heart. His desire was always to heal the nation of Israel. Be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles and that they will hear it. So this is a devastating statement for Paul and for the nation of Israel. See, the, the gospel was always intended for the Jewish people first. You, re you recognize that? And it was Paul's desire. Paul, we know this about Paul. We've seen it chapter after chapter. His desire is that the Jews would be saved. He'd given his whole life to making sure that the Jewish people were exposed to the gospel. And it was only after they rejected the gospel that he turned his attention to the Gentiles. And we saw this time and time again, city after city. He would go to the synagogue, and when the people of the synagogue rejected, he would turn to the people of the city, the, Jew, uh, the Gentile people. Romans chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says this, in a letter that he wrote uh, preceding these years that we find here at the end of Acts, Romans 1.6 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Romans 10.1 Romans says, Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they, had a, they have a zeal of God, but not according to knowledge, for they being ignorant of God's righteousness... And going about to establish their own righteousness have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. So despite Paul's efforts to the Jewish people, time and time again, they rejected it. Now we know this, right? We know that, that Jesus Christ himself came to the Jewish people. That he performed miracles in their midst. That he lived a perfect life. And that he was only just crucified, outright rejected. And we know that God sent the apostles to the Jewish people first in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 28, we see that Holy Spirit descend. We see those Jewish men filled with the Holy Spirit. They pour out into the streets of Jerusalem and they're preaching the gospel. And some receive, but the majority do not. And by the time we get to the stoning of Stephen, we see that the Jewish people and the Jewish leaders have rejected the gospel. They want nothing to do with this Messiah. And so, as a nation, they stand blind even today. God has turned them over to their blindness. In Romans chapter 11, verse 7, it says this, but it says, What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for. But the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, and ears that they should not hear unto this day. Now one of the things that we've discussed about Acts is that it's probably one of the most misunderstood books in the Bible, and it's probably one of the most mishandled books in the Bible. 
And that people often pull Scripture out of context from Acts and they use it to justify all kinds of crazy teachings, right? And many people today hold to a perspective called covenant theology, okay? I want to point this out to you. Covenant theology is a view of the Bible that promotes a replacement of Israel, okay? It's a way of dividing Scripture. It's not. It's the opposite of dispensational, right? Okay, you guys could go back and listen to those PS Plus episodes on this topic that Van so neatly did. Very simple explanation. Okay, but covenant theology is, it neglects the level of division in Scripture that we hold to as dispensationalists. And in so doing, they mush, it's the best word for it, they mush the nation of Israel and the church together. And what it does is it, is it promotes a replacement, that the church replaces Israel and somehow adopts all of the blessings and promises that were intended for Israel. We just take those on. And all the things that God says about Israel, now they apply to us. And I want to tell you right now that if you do that with Scripture, Scripture first and foremost just becomes very confusing. And you've got to allegorize and explain Scripture away over and over again. Okay, It's going to prevent you from being a true student of the Word of God. But more importantly, it's going to put you in danger of deception and teaching that that God will not redeem his people, the nation of Israel. And that's just not true. God has very explicitly told us that he has a plan to regraft in the nation of Israel into his plan. And the promises that he has made to his people will absolutely come true. They will absolutely be fulfilled. And he's got a plan. He's got a plan. And it goes, it goes something like this, 2 Corinthians 3.12. Seeing then that we have such hope, we use great plainness of speech... And not as Moses, which put a veil over his face, that the children of Israel could not steadfastly look to the end of that which is abolished, but their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth that same veil, untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which, is a, which veil is done away in Christ. Okay, so they've got a veil over their eyes. They can't see clearly. They can't see the reality of the Messiah. They don't recognize Jesus Christ for who he is. But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. In other words, there's coming a moment where Jesus Christ himself will remove the veil from off their eyes. Romans eleven twenty five says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery. Lest, okay, so there's a lot of people ignorant. Apparently, they're not reading this passage. 11.25 says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part has happened to Israel, until the fullness of the Gentiles is uh, become in. Okay, until the, until the reality of God manifest among the Gentiles comes to a, a closure. Verse 26, And so all Israel shall be saved, as, as it is written. What do you do with that? What do you do with that? Jesus Christ has a plan to save his people. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer and shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. 
And for this is my covenant unto them when I shall take away their sins. As concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sakes, but as touching the election, they are beloved for the Father's sake. So praise God. There's coming a day that the Bible refers to as the day of Jacob's trouble, the the great tribulation, where, where God's wrath will be poured out upon the earth. And when that happens, the nation of Israel's eyes will be open to the reality of who Christ is, and they will once and for all put their faith in the true Messiah. Praise God. What a wonderful story of redemption. What a, what a wonderful reminder that God keeps all of his promises. Okay, so now the question is, well, why is this so important, Brandon? Like, why, why are you harping on this? What significance, what, what are the takeaways for the end of Acts? Why do we have to know this? And that's this key point, key point number two. The mission-minded believer understands doctrinally the brevity of their mission. So they preach with urgency. See, Scripture is really plain that there's a time in which the age of the Gentiles will come. And, then, and, and that'll be signified by the rapture of the church. And when Jesus Christ comes, guess what? There's no more ministry. There's no more mission. There's no more opportunity. And every one of us as Gentile believers, as people in the church age, we have to recognize that there's a day in which this parenthetical time that we refer to as the church age, it will come to a close. In fact, it was never really intended to be. It wasn't God's plan A, if you will. It was his plan B. And and when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, Christ will return and our opportunity to do his work will no longer be there. And that truth and that understanding that we live in an age where God has given special favor among the Gentile people, the fact that we know that ought to inform the way that we act. I can see that you're not hearing me. Is that how Alan says it? You're not feeling me. I can see that you're not feeling me. I think he says it like that too, feeling, not feeling. Remember Acts chapter 1? Remember that? Acts 1-9, Jesus had been speaking with his disciples. And uh, he suddenly, he suddenly is lifted up out of their, their midst. And he goes to heaven, never to be seen by them with physical eyes again. Verse 9, and when he had spoken these things, while they beheld, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel. These were angelic beings, which also said, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, which is taken up from you into heaven, shall so, uh, shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Okay, what do we mean by that? What what, what are you you saying? Okay, this is what I'm saying. The, The angels were warning the men that if they just stood there gazing at Jesus ascending into heaven, that they would neglect the so precious work that sits between that moment and his return. 
And all of us are in danger of doing that. That we, would, that we would neglect the work, the urgent work, that we don't know the moment that's coming that's going to put this to an end. It could happen any moment. That we would somehow neglect the work that God has given us to do because we're so preoccupied with his, with his, with his personage or with the Bible or with studying or with, or with ministry activity or with with whatever the distraction, fill in the blank. The angels here in this story are calling the men to get to work. Don't stand around. Don't twiddle your, your, your thumbs. You have one life to live, so get to work. We have such a short time. Hebrews 10.37 says this, For yet a, a little while, and he that shall come will come, and will not tarry. 1 John 2.28 says, And now little children abide in him, that when he shall appear, we may, be, we may have confidence and not, and, and, and not be ashamed before him at his coming. If ye know that he is righteous, ye know that everyone that doeth righteousness is born of him. See, this doctrine of the church age and the eminence of Christ's return, it demands an urgency in our lives. It should inform the way that we act, the way that we behave, the way that we do everything. Not just because Jesus Christ could return any moment and that he's going to judge you for all of the things that you did with your life, whether you wasted them or you activated them for his glory. More than that, you don't know when you're going to die. Life is but a vapor and it's over. And there is not just an urgency on the church age, there's an urgency on your life that you wouldn't waste it, that you wouldn't throw it away. Because there's coming a moment where Jesus Christ himself is going to hold you accountable for whether or not you lived out all the things that he expected for you. Don't stand there gazing. The gazing, that's the work of the nominal believer. Christ is looking for laborers because the harvest is white and ready to be, to be yielded for his namesake. So there's a right obsession to learn from Paul. There's a right doctrine to learn to Paul, from Paul. And there's a right perspective to learn from Paul. So the last thing that we see in conclusion of Paul's story is that despite how difficult his circumstances were, he never stopped preaching. When things got hard, he just adapted. And as the most coddled generation to ever exist, I don't know if we understand this. When things are hard, we have an excuse to not proceed. But when things were hard for Paul, even to the point where he was imprisoned, which we've seen over the last few chapters, by the time we get to the end of Acts, he's literally been in, in holding for four years of his life. That none of these circumstances affected his ability to preach the gospel. Nothing got in the way. And right here in Acts, we see that he's on house arrest. And, and, and nothing's changed. See, he's not even in Rome for three days when he calls for the Jewish leaders to come and meet with him. That he might plead with them over the gospel. I mean, you'd think the dude would need a nap. I mean, it hasn't... Like, he's been shipwrecked. His life has been absolute hell for years. 
And you think that the, the one thing he wanted to do was get to Rome. You think he'd just take a couple days for a breather. But within three days, he's preaching before a mass of Jewish leaders. He's ready to roll. Nothing was going to keep him from preaching the gospel. This is a man that makes lemonade from lemons. And by the end of chapter 28, Paul has spent four years in varying levels of house arrest. And yet all this, listen to the testimony. Verse 30. And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came in unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. So the way that it worked in Rome was that that he was was awaiting his hearing before the tribunal of Caesar. And from, from what we know here, it never happened. Apparently Nero was like a really busy man or something. And so it never happened. And, and, and probably because those accusations were all faulty. And Paul was probably right. Remember when he appealed to Caesar? He was, he was probably right in that that was the right move. It, it, he actually was found innocent. And, and, and history tells us that he was set free here for, for several years before he was killed. But here's the thing that we need to learn from this is that we're a people who are are naturally always looking for the most convenient solution to difficult situations. We're always looking for the thing that's going to spare us all the hurt and the harm. And the difference between that perspective and the one that we find in Paul is that Paul always accepted the difficulty. And he was looking for the hack within his trial. He was looking for a workaround, a way in which he might be able to minister through the storm and and through the trial. And that's something that we have to adopt. For most of us, difficulty in our lives typically just means that we're going to act in a self-serving way. But Paul was different because his obsession to preach the gospel governed his entire life his thoughts and his behaviors. And he was never preoccupied with his situation, but rather how he might obey God regardless of the situations that he faced. See, nothing was impossible with this kind of perspective. And it allowed him to make the most out of every situation that he was in. Philippians 4.10, he says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at the last your care of me hath flourished again. Wherein ye were also careful, but ye lacked opportunity. Not that I speak in respect of want. For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and and in all things... I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ which strengthened me. See, when you got that tattoo, you didn't know what that meant. (laughs) See, you thought that meant that God would, would give you the ability to do whatever you wanted to do. That you would be successful in whatever sporting endeavor that you had in high school or, you know. Seems like football players get this tattoo a lot. But you didn't know the, the true power behind that passage and that scripture was that, that God's going to strengthen you. T. 
to endure any kind of hardship or trial that you face. No no matter how terrible your life is, that God's going to use you and he's going to strengthen you. He's not going to preserve you or keep you from hardship. He's going to give you the grace to go through it and to still be used despite, despite the fact that you might lose everything along the way. See, it didn't even matter to him if no one on earth agreed or wanted to follow him. Paul was bent on following Christ. 2 Timothy 4.16 says, And my first answer, no man stood with me, but all men forsook me. Can you imagine saying that? I mean, we're so privileged to have one another in our lives and and to stand together with like-minded believers. But Paul at times felt just like the, the man Noah as though he was the only man on earth willing to do what was right. He says, everyone forsook me. I pray, God, that it may not be laid to their charge. Man. Verse 17, notwithstanding, the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, that by me the preaching might be fully known, and that all the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. And the Lord shall deliver me from every evil work and will preserve me unto his heavenly kingdom. Not preserved through the trial, but preserved unto the kingdom to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And we see this attitude in Acts chapter 28 too as he's sitting in his house arrest and people are coming and hearing hearing him teach time and time again. Now after two years... And no accusations brought against Paul. He would, be, he would be set free. Most historians say in 63 AD, he was set free. And people say all kinds of stuff about what he did in that time. Remember, at one point in Romans, he promises that he's going to get to Spain. Right? So some people say, well, maybe, maybe Paul went to Spain after this and went and preached the gospel there. Some historians think that, that maybe he went to other parts of Europe. Right? No matter... Either way, we know for a fact that he spent his time preaching. That wherever he went, he was preaching. That no matter his situation, he was preaching. And in 64 AD, Rome burnt. And some say that Nero set fire to Rome. Okay? He had many different reasons. Nero was a violent man. History is, is replete with many instances of how wicked of a man he was. He kicked his own pregnant wife to death, for instance. Nero was a wicked, wicked man with only himself on his mind. And when Rome burnt, the easy scapegoat was to put it on the Christians. Because there were people in Rome at the time were pointing, pointing at Nero and saying, Nero did this. Nero did this. He did it because he wanted to remodel. He, this, is true, this is true, right? The Nero was looking for an opportunity to rebuild the urban center of Rome. And, and many people believe that he burnt Rome to the ground. Thousands of people died. People lost their stuff because he wanted to simply redo the urban center and build it the way he wanted it to be built. And so they're pointing, they're pointing at Nero, and Nero feels that pressure. And so the easiest thing for him to do was to point to the Christians, the people that no one understood, those sect of believers 
that, that no one wanted to identify with. And he pointed at them and said, this is their fault. They did this. And so the next thing to do was to, to simply capture the people that they could identify as the leaders of this sect. And so we see, we see in history, we see Peter is captured and crucified for his faith. And Paul was captured and in 67 AD was beheaded for his faith. And so why is this important? Why is this uncanonized history so important? Right? That story is not in the Bible. But I think, I believe, I, I believe that it has relevance to the way that we understand the willingness to endure affliction as God's bride. I think it's critical for us to understand what devotion really looks like. What does it really look like to have given up everything for the message of Jesus Christ? What does it really look like to be obsessed? And this leads us to an essential truth that we need to understand. The mission-minded believer lives like they have nothing to lose. See, Paul chose to live a purposeful and devoted life despite a death warrant that perpetually hung over his head. No matter where he went, no matter what he did, he knew that people wanted to see him dead. Can you imagine living that way? Can you put yourself in his shoes? Can you consider for just a moment what it would be like that if you left this building today and you went out into the public and you went about running your errands and living your life, that there was some people always around that were wanting to kill you? For many of us, that fact would cause us to go into hiding. It would cause us to tremble. It would cause us to not go out. But see, you didn't know that it takes a lot less than that to suspend us and keep us from preaching the gospel. For us, it's all it takes is the right show on Netflix. This is a man who, despite all the dangers that surrounded his life, chose to just go out and preach, just to, just to do it. And he knew what the outcome would be. He knew that one day he would die. So while Acts 28 is not the ending we all want, it's the ending that we all need. This is what we need to know. Paul's life story is a pregnant pause before the church age. A conclusion full of anticipation that can only be realized in you. In your life. In what you choose to believe. In what you choose to do. See, the baton has been handed off. And only you can decide if your life will be filled with the purpose of God or not. Only you decide that.
Only you can determine that you will have a mind for the mission. That's a decision that you make. No one can make it for you. The fact that you're in this ministry doesn't automatically make you a partaker. You choose whether or not you will receive the mind of Christ and that you will use the ensample that's been given to us in the Acts of the Apostles and that you will be conformed to that even to the risk of your own life. Only you can decide that. And so I think it's fitting that as we close, that we not wait for mission focus to uncover and work through whether or not God has called us to be a missionary. I think it's appropriate that we work through that right now. I mean, there's people in this room that you don't know when and you don't know how, but you know for a fact on your heart is the call of a missionary. And you know what's burning inside of you. And as we conclude Acts, there's no better time than for you to verbalize that with someone and pray over it. There's people in this room right now. You recognize that you're supposed to be a part of a church plant one day. You don't know when, you don't know where, you don't know how. There's men in this room that have have come to realize that the the, the call of the pastorate is on your life. You can't escape it. You think about it. You sit in bed and you wonder. You wonder what it's going to look like. And you've never told a single person, but you can't escape the fact that God's put something on your life, a calling on your life that's unique. You don't know how, you don't know where, you don't know when, but there's coming a time you believe that you're supposed to be a pastor. And it's time for you to verbalize that. It's time for you to to bring it up and, and to sit down with someone, to pray about it, and to work through those convictions. See, listen to me. Do not let fear rule your life. Our confidence is in Christ. You don't need to be anything. You don't need to be an, you don't need to have an identity. You don't need to compare yourself to anyone else. You don't need to compare yourself to me. You don't have to remind yourself time and time again what you don't know. None of that matters. All that matters is that he's called you son and he's called you daughter and he's given you a work to do and you can't deny it. So don't deny it. Why not dream big? Why not consider all the possibilities? Why not pray with someone today about what God's doing in your heart? And let's all of us leave this place determined to be missionaries in our neighborhood, in our schools, in our workplaces. Let's let's just be determined. Let's be resolved. Let's hold each other accountable to that. Let's not waste the last two and a half years. Let's, let's, Let's encourage in one another 
the sacrifices necessary to live the way that they lived in the first century. Nero lit his gardens in Rome with the bodies of burning Christians. And they didn't stop. They didn't stop. They kept going. They kept preaching the gospel. And it's the faith of those believers and their willingness to speak up in times of hardship. It's their faith that is the reason that you know Christ today, Gentile believer. David, would you come up and lead us? We're going to pray, and as we pray, the counselors are going to come forward, and and this is the time of invitation. Let's work through our stuff. Let's let God have his way, his calling on our life. Let's let him do what he wants to do with us. Let's not preserve our life for ourselves. Let's stop thinking selfishly. Let's give away our life now. Let's repent of all of that clamoring and holding on. And let's let go. And let's let God have his way with us. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you for what you've taught us. We thank you for Paul. We thank you for his example. Lord, I pray that you would teach us to just be like him, our big brother in the faith and that we would see his story and it would inspire us to be and to do things that we would never think possible otherwise Lord give us the strength to become all that you need us to be and if we've got to go somewhere else in the world or we've got to go somewhere else (laughs) to to proclaim your gospel Lord you would begin to show us that even if it's just an inkling even if it's just a spark Lord would you allow us to kindle that spark Lord, would you teach us what it looks like to be a follower, a true follower of you, to sacrifice, to to Romans chapter 12, just live a, a life of sacrifice, reasonable before you. Make us what you want us to be as people, but also as a ministry, Lord. Make Kaya to be more fruitful than we've ever been before because every member of this ministry is willing to speak up. Every, every member of this ministry is willing to start a Bible study. Every member of this ministry is willing to face rejection. Lord, make us fruitful and give us the faith necessary to reach this city for your namesake. Lord, change us forever because of what your word says. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.li.com.